podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're in uh, part five, week five here, I think, of this First Peter series, and we've got, let's see, one more week of it after this, and then we'll start a different series during Advent. Um, but yeah, so, so here we are in this letter. We're going to stay in chapter four tonight, and First Peter, as we say this every week, is, is kind of a study in cross-cultural living, or sort of a, a living against the grain, if you will, and it is that. Because Peter is writing to these churches, these congregations, and, and I've used this phrase, I think, almost every week, as one of the commentaries has put it. Peter's writing to congregations in, in cities that are kind of in the backwoods of the empire, so to speak. Maybe places that could be forgotten. Maybe congregations that might have felt alone where they were. Uh, these were also chiefly Gentile congregations. And if you know what that means, you know that one of the core messages of the New Testament is that, wait a second, it's not just Jews who are the people of God, but all who are in Jesus the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, who's the fam- who the family of God is, is no longer defined along ethnic lines or national lines, but it now becomes defined by faith in Christ and whoever's in Christ. And so this is kind of a big deal. And uh, when, we, when we, we read the verse a few weeks ago, and Peter says to them, look, you are a chosen generation, you're a holy nation, you're a royal priesthood. Those were big phrases for a, a group of Gentile congregations to hear because obviously those phrases were phrases that they were used to hearing applied to Jews or maybe Jews applying those phrases to themselves because of their rich and long history as God's people. And now Peter's saying, wait a second, those phrases now work for you. You, you, can, you can wear that, that identity. You can wear that badge. You can call yourself because you are, you are indeed this chosen generation, this holy people. It has nothing to do with sort of being the millennials or the generation X or Y or what. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with being the people of God, the family of God, now all together. But the trick is, these congregations are living in places where they are on the margins, where they are on the fringe, so to speak, of society. And so Peter, unlike Paul's letters, when Paul sort of gives instructions about how to live in the households and how to husbands and wives and kids and all this stuff. Paul's giving instructions about um, Christian households and how to live as Christian community. Peter is saying, yes, that, but particularly as Christian community, when your life or your rhythm of life uh, leads you to intersect with, quote-unquote, secular society, which is the bulk of us. So you think about your jobs, think about your workplace, think about the city, think about the government, think about all of the ways in which we are living in a culture that we are not fully at home in. Uh, in fact, several weeks ago when Pastor Daniel was preaching about the persecution or the suffering that comes from that, one of the questions I think is worth raising is, if we don't feel opposition from our culture, maybe it's because we're not living in opposition to it. Uh, maybe it's because we sort of go along with the grain of consumerism or greed or whatever it is, and it's worth kind of saying, wait a, wait a minute, am I living as an exile, as a stranger, as someone who's not fully at home here? And so each week as we've talked about a theme, we've, talked, uh, we've tried to frame it in the light of how, does this, how do we tackle this theme, uh, thinking of ourselves as people that are living from the margins, living against the grain 
of culture. Uh, earlier this week, we had our first snow here in Colorado, and uh, it, it was wonderful. I, I, later than normal, normally we get sort of a nice October blizzard, um, but, but it, you know, we, we, we waited all the way up until November, but I love the first snow, and the first snow, we sort of have this tradition whenever it comes, and so, you know, even I think it was last year, the first snow came in October, we still stuck by our tradition, and our tradition is this, when the first snow happens, it's time to play some Christmas music. And, and it, you can turn it off the next day, but when it's snowing, you just got to play Christmas music. So I came home from work, I think it was Tuesday, Tuesday night, and I came home, and it was like 5.15, 5.20, whatever, and uh, my girls are out in the backyard, you know, Sophia and Nora are out in the backyard, and there's barely any snow, but they're chasing like these tiny things, trying to catch snowflakes on their tongue, and they're just so pumped about it. And so, you know, we're all feeling festive, and we got the carols going, and I turned on the fireplace, you know, it's convenient about a gas fireplace, you can do that, voila, fire, and, uh, and the mood was there, you know, there we go, we're all feeling festive and November-ish and, and holiday-ish, and, um, and it, it makes me think, of course, of what's coming, what's right around the corner, we're about to uh, start in, in a few weeks here, uh, the season of Advent, the four weeks, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day and Advent is all about a sense of longing and, and expectancy and hope. And, and when you think about the first Advent, of course, there was this longing that, of, that, that is, is shaped maybe with this undertone of despair. And, and is, this, is God really going to come through? And it's interesting to me how very little we think about longing or how much longing is not really part of our lives. I was listening to Pastor Aaron Stern teach uh, at New Life Sunday School this morning about fasting, and he talked about how fasting teaches us to long for the return of the bridegroom. You know, Jesus says, uh, they asked Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? And he says, look, because the bridegroom's here, but there's coming a day when he will be taken away, and you will fast. In other words, there's something about delaying a gratification to remind us that what we're ultimately hoping for is not yet here. Now that seems contrary, because as modern-day American Christians, we want to believe that everything we read and understand here is for now. And if it's not for now, then it doesn't work. Let me go find something else that will address the now. Now, it's not as if there's nothing in the Bible. There's plenty in the Bible that addresses the now. It's just that it, can, it never undoes the sense of longing for what's coming. The reason I'm saying all that is because the verse that we are going to read from tonight is 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 7 is where we'll start. And the phrase that Peter uses is this, the end of all things is near. And with a phrase like that, it can conjure, it can conjure up all sorts of, you know, 1984 or Y2K or whatever, all the different things we've all lived through, but it can conjure up all, sort of this, all sorts of hype about, okay, here we go, the end of all things is near. And I don't know what your picture is of the end of all things. For some of us, because of culture, maybe because of church, maybe because of terrible books and movies in the name of be being Christian, it's shaped our view of the end as being sort of this, this dark or mysterious or kind of sci-fi kind of thing. And we're like, well, I don't really know, but if you add up this number with this number, that means, you know, and everybody loves their theories about which political leader is now going to be the, you know, 
And remember the theories that came about with the EU, and the EU was formed. Okay, so there's all sorts of different theories. Oh, well, I think this is it, and I think this is the fulfillment of prophecy. But, but, but really what we're not saying is we're not coming clean about this because undergirding all of our image or our imagination about the end of all things is a sense of hysteria, is a sense of panic, is a sense of, oh, yes, oh, yeah, here we go, you know, this is it. But there's none of that tone in Peter. In fact, it's, it's helpful to ask ourselves, okay, so when Peter said, says the end of all things is near, what might Peter have had in mind? What was he thinking that we're looking forward to? In 2 Peter 3, he gives us a little bit more in his second letter. He says this, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now stop for a moment. If you've been coming to Sunday night for a while, you've heard me reference this and allude to this and talk on this because I'm trying to unravel some of the damaging effects of maybe um, being around certain environments may have had on your picture of the end. But most of us, including myself, have grown up sort of thinking that the end is this awful mess down here and then Jesus comes like an evacuation helicopter and then lifts us out and we grab the rope and say, See ya! You know, hate it for you. We're out of here. And yet the picture that we have in Revelation 21 is of the triumphant returning Jesus coming back and saying, all right, it's time to make all things new. It's time to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's time to let them be joined as one, just as it was in the very beginning. In fact, you know, Paul, there's, this, there's this word, the return. It's the Greek word parousia, and it shows up a lot in Paul's letters. But do you know parousia, the return of Jesus, the return of the king? Sounds like a great movie. The return of the king really has these empire undertones. There was sort of, that word parousia was used in the context of the Roman Empire, of when, a, when the emperor had gone away to fight a great battle and then was returning. And before he had yet gotten to the city, people, his loyal citizens, would run out to meet him. And they would come out of the city to meet him. But then do you know what they would do? They'd march, continue marching back into the city. Think of that. Because our picture of the end of all things is Things are going to get messy and weird, and Jesus will come as the returning king and say, come away with me. But instead, what it is is, yes, even if there is a rapture, even if there is a we, us coming out to meet him, meet him in the air, as Thessalonians says, even if there is that, and we can believe that and hope in that, that, that our meeting him is not to say, woo, see ya, but our meeting him is to say, we're joining his entourage, his, his welcome party, as we march with him back to earth to reclaim his world. That's the picture of the end of all things. So the end of all things is not this morbid, oh man, this is going to get worse. The end, end, end is Jesus returning to restore and set right his world. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that that is the end of all things, I think it'll shape a very different kind of present. If, you, if that's your picture of the future, it has a way of rearranging your present. I suspect that because our picture of the end of all things is morbid and gloomy and frantic and hysterical, 
that our view then of the present is panicked. We typically have one or two responses when it, when it comes to how we should live in the meantime. How do we live in the meantime? We're not quite there at the end, but how do we live in, in this anticipation of it? And because we have thought that the end of all things is kind of this panic, hysterical, morbid moment, we've kind of had one or two approaches. The, the one approach is to say, well, to sort of sit on our hands and say, well, we can't do anything about it, and I just don't know what's going to happen, but well, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Swing low, sweet chariot, and see you later. Or the other approach is to say, well, um, you know, things are kind of wrapping up soon, so we need to be frantic, and we just gotta, we've got to evangelize. And, and every person we meet, whether we sit next to them on, on a bus or at work, it's like every conversation has to be uh, overtly evangelistic. And so you, you, we were taught, you know, in the church that I grew up in in Malaysia, it was like, look, if you're getting your hair cut, you need to witness to the barber. You, you know, so I tried this as an 11-year-old. It didn't go so good. Um, but, but I was convinced that I needed to keep trying, and it was sort of this panicked thing of like, okay, look, uh, the end is near. Jesus has come, so you better try to get everyone saved. And so someone says, hi, good morning. You say, do you know where you're going if you died tonight? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? what? Good morning. See ya, <laughs> you know. And there's this panicked thing. And maybe it may be surprising to know that the closer that Jesus got to the cross, the more ambiguous his preaching got. Do you know there's a series of parables that Jesus preaches throughout Luke's gospel? I think it's a set of ten parables as he's walking through Samaria on his way to the cross, on his way to Jerusalem. And do you know the closer that he gets to Jerusalem, the less direct his parables become? So, well, Jesus, that's just bad preaching technique. I mean, we've got to talk about communication skills. I mean, where's the emotional hook, Jesus? Where's the emotional hook in a story about dung? There is none. Where's the sign? Where's the gather the net moment, Jesus, in that parable? How come, Jesus, come on, you've, you've, you've got, time is ticking, you're, you're heading to the cross, you're, you're about to leave. Don't you think you ought to get all these people going? I mean, come on, the end of all things is near, let's be, get, a, get going with it. And yet you see a Jesus that is resolute, is fi- fixed on the cross, he knows where he's headed, and not a Jesus that's panicked or hysterical. Maybe seeing that is emblazoned on Peter's heart. Maybe his memory of Jesus, as he was wrapping up his time on earth, is what conditions Peter to give us these instructions in the next few verses. Because this is what Peter says. Back to 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. God, help me. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Because the end of all things is near, and Peter says, be alert and of a sober mind. Taking care of the now requires that. Living sensibly with 
tomorrow, with today, with our work days, with our families, with our friends, requires an alertness and a sober mind. Because we're not there yet. We're not at this point yet. And so what, how do we make sense of it? This first thing, I want to talk to us maybe about three things tonight. And the first is this, pray. So that you may pray. Be alert and of a sober mind so that you may pray. This is interesting because prayer is a way of remembering what's really going on. A prayer is a way of saying, okay, I know what everything around me is sort of pushing and telling and pressing and pulling, but prayer is a way of, being, of staying tuned in to the Lord. A prayer, ironically, can sometimes be a way of escape. It can sort of be this thing where we say, well, this whole world is, is awful, but I'm just going to escape in my prayer closet, and I'm just going to pray. And sometimes you'll talk to a person who says, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, um, I don't know about loving people or serving, but I just, I, I'm, I'm just, just want to pray, and I just want to commune with Jesus. Well, that's great, but the kind of prayer that we see in the New Testament is always a prayer that says, let me tune in so that I can get to work, so that I can act, so that I can love, so that I can serve. And, and Peter... I suspect, knew something a little bit about this sort of prayer because in Matthew 26, we have this story. Do you remember this? Where Jesus takes Peter and James and John and says, come with me to the garden. The end is near for me, for my time here. And he says, stay, come on, stay with me. And, and Peter is one of the three that fall asleep. What's so interesting is if you read the account in Matthew 26, they're all, all three of them are, have fallen asleep. Okay, they've all fallen asleep on the job. They're there to be with Jesus, support him, be his you know, strength. And, and he comes back and they're, they're out. But Jesus singles out Peter. Just, Peter, could you not pray with me? Could you not tarry with me for an hour? Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. That language, the be alert and pray, same language that Peter says right here. Be alert and of a sound mind so that you can pray. I think this is an older, wiser Peter saying, Oh, let me tell you about the time I wasn't alert and didn't pray. The Lord himself singled me out. There's something about this of saying, Okay, wait. Wait, 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 wait. There's a ton of distraction. It reminds me, I think, what's the baseball movie where it's the pitcher and he's like, Clear the mechanism, you know, and all the noise of the stadium just goes... Love of the game, right? And he starts, you know, I can't pitch, but whatever. So it, it's, it's that idea that prayer is this thing that allows us to stay tuned in and say, wait, I know that around me is a person that's really uh, annoying or, or, or needy, or, or around me is this situation or this disease or this struggle at my job, or around me is this, or around me are these things, but how can I tune in to the Lord and, and be able to be alert, to pray, to tune in, to stay aware that God is still at work. How can we remember that? As we were talking about it earlier tonight when we were taking the sacraments, you know, the whole earth is full of His glory. Is that true? Yeah. So maybe part of our time of prayer is that awareness of that. Maybe tomorrow morning as you drive on I-25 or, you know, on Academy Boulevard or whatever, that maybe there's something about saying, okay, I want to pray today so that I can be aware of what's happening with my colleagues in my workplace, even right now. I want to be aware of it. I don't want to be distracted by just how things appear. I want to remember that the Spirit of God is still at work. The earth is full of His glory. 
Secondly, Peter goes on and he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. I think it's a great temptation among us as, as Christians to, when we, when we talk about love, to immediately think about the lost or the needy or the sick or the poor. And it's sort of a categories. But do you know, you, you can't love the world. You can't love the lost. You can't love the poor. You can't love orphans. You can't love any of those things. You know why? Because those are categories. Those are ideas. It doesn't translate to anything to say, well, I just, I just love this. Or I just love that. Those are groups. You can't love a group. What you can love are individuals and people, people whose names you know, people whose names you're aware of. But I love how in the New Testament, it seems like Peter and Paul sense in us this desire for the grandiose kind of thing. It's like, oh, love, yes, I'm going to. And they keep pulling us back to this place of saying, wait, 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 wait. Start here. Love one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. So, well, I, I mean, I don't know about that, but I really have a heart for my city. And I really want to do this, and I really want to do that. And it's like, well, that, 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 sure. But scale it back, pull it back, pull it back, pull it back. Who's that person next to you at church tonight? Well, I don't know, but I just have a heart for Africa. <laughs> pull it back, pull it back. Love one another. Every time we see love being mentioned, even when Jesus says it, he says, they'll know you're my disciples. How? Because of your love for them? Because of your love for each other. There's something that we're supposed to learn here with one another. Part of the reason we gather at church is because we're sort of forced to interact with people that maybe we wouldn't choose to interact with. Maybe sit next to, sit behind, sit in front of, listen to someone that you may not choose to. And so there's something that, we're, that it pushes against us and says, whoa, whoa, love is not an idea and, and, and you can't love categories of people. You can only love the person right there in front of you. It's personal. You've got to know their names. About 100 years after Peter died, the church in, throughout the Roman Empire had a remarkable example of this. The um, sociologist, Rodney, his name's Rodney Stark, and uh, I, I believe when he began studying the rise of Christianity, he was fascinated by how Christianity spread in the midst of a hostile environment, in the midst of an empire that otherwise was not favorable to it. I'm talking about the first couple centuries of Christianity. And as he began to study it, he, he, he came up with this very, very interesting hypothesis. And based on some data and things like that, he sort of constructed this model of what might have really happened here in the mid-second century. See, the empire was ravaged by a plague. And uh, around the time that it happened, let me get this right here, by some estimates, using contemporary models and some ancient records, by some estimates, about a third of the empire's population was destroyed by this plague. And yet, Christians emerged out of that as somehow having a superior survival rate. How is that? And then you sort of reconstruct this. And you recognize that what was happening was you would have well-known pagan physicians 
who would flee the cities and get to the countryside because they just wanted to get away. There's a plague going on. Got to get out of here. In fact, when they, when, when they saw their, their bodies, that were, there's records of their bodies that were laying on top of one another in pagan temples as if people came to try to get help from these places and ended up collapsing and dying. Bodies strewn on top of one another in fountains in the city courtyards. But there were Christians who began to care for one another, give basic help, food, water, care. And the disease, we think now, probably was something like smallpox or measles, something that you can certainly survive. Something that if someone would, was taking care of you and giving you uh, enough fluids and that sort of thing, that you could actually survive and you could make it past that. And so Christians began to take care of one another as they had this disease. And as the plague sort of went through, many of the Christians would survive. But here's the other thing that happened. We know this. Once you get something like smallpox or measles and you survive it, guess what? You're immune. You can't get it again. And so these Christians that have been sort of nursed back to help, help they're not fleeing and saying, okay, I'm great. I'm good now. Thanks. See ya. What they began to do was care for the nonbelievers who are around them. And it began, the love that began within their community began to spill out. That's always the way it flows. And as they began to care for one another, imagine the scene here of Christians walking among these sort of care places, tents, whatever, and they're, and they're walking among those that are infected by this thing, and they're not catching it. It's a miracle. These Christians are immune. Well, yeah, but you can be, too, you know, so anyway, it, it became, Stark suggests that this is one of those things that was catalytic for Christianity increasing and spreading the way that it did in the mid-second century. I think that's fascinating. That's an example of love not being an idea or a concept or a category. I just love the lost. But love beginning with one another. Beginning with the people that, whose needs you actually know. And if you don't know their needs, maybe it's time to get to know them. And then that begins to spill out. Peter goes on and he says... Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I thought it might be clever, maybe corny, but clever, uh, to make our points tonight, pray, love, and eat, you know, as a, as a poor parody of a book I've neither read nor a movie that I've seen. But uh, just so you'd remember it tonight, to say simply, eat. And he says to them, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this is interesting. Peter himself had kind of an interesting history with food and with eating and with having people into his home. Um, you know the story, maybe, in Acts 10, you've heard the story where there's a devout Gentile named Cornelius. And this is before it's kind of common knowledge that everyone sort of knows that, yeah, Jews and Gentiles can now both be the people of God. And this, this guy, Cornelius, has this vis- vision, this visitation from an angel, and he knows that he's supposed to go send for Peter. And so these men come, and they knock on Peter's door. Meanwhile, Peter's having this vision of food, which is a lot like the kind of visions I get. You know? but, but he's, he, and obviously the point of it is there's these unclean animals, and he's like, I'm not supposed to eat this. And the Lord says, Peter, don't call anything unclean that I've... Right? And the point is not food at all. The point is that there's no um, racism anymore. There's no, there's no racial boundaries about who God's people are and who they are not. And so, and so Peter's kind of getting comfortable. And just as he's getting the point of this vision... Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Peter, we're some messengers from this devout Gentile guy named Cornelius, and blah, 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 and they tell him the story. And you know what Peter says? He says, come in. 
Come into my home. That's a remarkable act for a Jewish man to do. And then they say, well, Peter, will you come? Will you come and visit? He says, okay. And he goes, and Cornelius opens the door at his house. And Peter says, uh, before I step in, I just want you to know that we Jews don't do this. We don't go into a Gentile's home. Uh, we don't eat with that. And Cornelius says, yeah, 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 come on in. Peter goes in. And here he, he himself has experienced someone being in his home that's outside of his grid and being in someone's home who's outside his grid. I wonder if this conditioned Peter to say, look, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Get over the differences. Take the risk. Have them into your home. Eat with one another. We were out to eat with some friends last night, and I love restaurants, and restaurants are great. I'll probably go to a restaurant with a few people tonight, you know. Uh, and and, and it's, it's, it's good and fine, but there's always something special when people are in your home. There's always something special about having to prepare the meal. I, I grew up, um, my mom is a fabulous cook, but she's also the sort of cook that everything is from scratch. And I mean, we, uh, my job was with the mortar and pestle thing to sort of grind up our own spices and, you know, ma- you know all this stuff. And so, but what, it, what happened then was the kitchen kind of became the place. Uh, if you wanted to talk to mom, you came home from school, whatever, that was the place, you, you, you know, to be, to hang out. And so my sister and I would come in the kitchen, and it was like, okay, hey, uh, here, here's some garlic. Would you, you know, peel that and mash it? Oh, yeah, sure, okay. And how was your day? Oh, it was great, you know. And we're talking to them as we're preparing the meal, and then we'll, we'll all sit down and eat together. I think there's something beautiful about that that's lost. Because maybe wrapped up in all of that, of the preparing food together, eating food together that you've prepared. Someone has thought about picking the groceries. Someone has thought about preparing those groceries. Someone has thought about putting this... Maybe there's something sacred about that because it shows a, a, a dropping of the defenses. Maybe the, the, the place where you really know that you're friends is when you sit in the kitchen with them and help them fix a meal. And together, you're, you're doing this together. Now, am I romanticizing this? Maybe. But I wonder if there's something significant about the fact that it's a lost art in our culture. That we'd rather just have relationships that are like, hey, what do you got? I once, once got a call from a, a well-known sort of ministry person in town, and, and it was totally surprising to me, but his secretary calls me and says, hey, so-and-so would like to have lunch with you. I'm thinking, oh, this is great. You know, we set up the appointment. It's like six weeks out. We go to lunch, and no kidding, in 40 minutes, he's like, okay, well, it's been great. Great getting to know you a little bit. God bless you. Have a great day. And I, be- before I knew it, I didn't know what had happened. We'd sat down in a restaurant. Somebody ordered food quickly. Someone brought the stuff. We talked. Blah, 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 blah. 40 minutes, it was done. Now, I'm not knocking that. I was grateful for 40 minutes of his time. But if all our relationships are like that, I suggest we don't really know anybody. If all of our meals together are, let's just go somewhere where someone else does this, and we sit down, and there's a distracted environment. There's lots going on. There's a TV there. There's it, you know, and we're eating together. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, well, have a great day, man. Bless you. I'll be praying for you. We've had the chance to you know, have people over in our home. We've also, one of the delights for us is to be in, in, others, in other people's homes. And I, we love having that delicious chicken enchilada dish that I still got to get the recipe for uh, with the Olsons, you know. And, and 
sitting down leisurely on, on a Sunday afternoon and talking and moving from the, kit, from the dining table to the living room and having dessert and talking. and having, I love that because that's the beginnings of a relationship. And maybe all of that is a picture to us, a reminder to us that real community is slow. That real community is slow. And that real community requires a lot of risk. You know, it used to be, you think about this even with like floor plans, it used to be that the kitchen was sort of in the back of the house, and it's like nobody, someone goes in there, prepares it secretly, and comes back, you know. And if you got in the kitchen, it was like, oh, are you sure? I mean, if you went in the kitchen, right? And now, we're, we're, maybe it's a good sign, I guess, that some of that's changing, the kitchen's kind of out there in the open, but there's something about saying to someone else, yeah, come on in, I don't know, here, open the fridge, what do we have in there? Here, I don't know, let's fix something together. And maybe it's just a start to just have someone in your home to begin with. Maybe that's the beginning, and maybe it's pizza, take and bake pizza like we did a couple of weeks ago. Maybe that's a start, you know. The point is, if we're going to be more than a group of people that gather on Sunday evenings from 5 to 6.30 and face forward, if we're going to be a congregation, it means that we do some of this. It means that we look out and say, well, I don't know. I've met them. They seem sort of nice. Maybe we'll, we'll test it with a coffee at Starbucks, you know, and then if that goes well, then we'll have them over. Okay, fine, whatever. But then we get to this place where we're able to say, let's, let's eat with one another. Let's be in each other's homes. Pastor Brady has suggested that we take maybe a six-week challenge, you know, six weeks to the end of the year, and And maybe we can all think about the places, the ways, the people that we could start to love in a tangible way. We say, well, maybe maybe there's, aren't there some school worship students here, you know? Maybe they're not going home for Thanksgiving. Maybe they need a place, you know? Plug, plug. There's a group of guys over there looking very hungry. Um, Maybe there's someone here who's been out of work for a while. Maybe... I just need to take him a meal. I, you know, I don't know him so well yet, but maybe I'll just take him. You know, maybe there's somebody who's going to have surgery soon, and maybe you know, we can think of that. We can meet one another. We can get to know that. Because I think there is something that happens when we understand that because the end of all things is near, that we're going to be alert, we're going to pray, tune in to the Holy Spirit, and then with that tuning in, we love each other in tangible ways. We eat with one another in risky, sometimes awkward moment ways. And then what if that love that we have here begins to spill out? That's the way it's supposed to work. It would be a farce if we were the church that spearheaded a multi-church partnership to launch a dream center in our city but we didn't know how to bring meals to one another. It would, be a, it would be a tragedy. And that's not anybody's desire. The desire is that our love in here is simmering and boiling and spilling over into the city. So that people say, you know what? Who has people over to their homes anymore? I don't know, but I know this guy at work. He's always having people over. Be the house on your street where there's always cars lined up, you know. Man, what is going on in that house? There's a house in my neighborhood that does it, but it's not because of this stuff. Something, <laughs> something else going on in that house. It's a bunch of single dudes, you know. 
<laughs> the end of this passage wraps up with Peter saying, So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And Peter echoes this theme throughout his letter that if you're being falsely accused, live in such a way that it refutes that. If others are persecuting you, meet them with such love that they have no answer for you. If you're doing this, then let your light so shine that they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. All echoes, of course, of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. If we understand that the end of all things is not hysteria and panic, but the return of a conquering king who's going to say, come on, let's set everything right. And if that's the king we're waiting for, then how should we live in the meantime? Shouldn't we be clear-minded? People who pray. People who love in tangible ways. People who eat together and love one another in such a way that it spills out. And others who are watching and see it and like, I don't know. Somehow God the Father is glorified because we, the church, are living that way. I don't, I don't want this to be kind of this, oh man, we could be and what if, you know. I just think it just requires us to act on it. Take some risks with it. Say, all right, well, I don't know, maybe we'll start with going out on Sunday nights. You know, we can go out, we'll do the restaurant thing for a little bit, and then once we feel comfortable, we'll plan a dinner party. Okay, great. Let's do that. Maybe it's time to talk to one another about the needs that are in our life. To say, you know what, I, I'm, the truth is, struggling. We've been without a job for a while and I, you know, it's okay, well, what do you need? Maybe, can we, can we bring a meal to you? Wouldn't that be great? So that it begins to spill out. Alright? Let's pray. Jesus, your return marks for us the beginning of a feast. The beginning of a great banquet. Part of our eating together is a foreshadow of that, a hint of that, a reminder of that, that it's coming. Help us to be people that take the risks of long, slow relationships that involve some kitchen time together. Eating together. coming from a place of love where we are loving one another in these tangible ways. All coming because we've been able to pray and tune into you and tune out the, the, the selfishness or the, the, the pressures to sort of be too private or too individual or too selfish. Father, you are the creator and the restorer. And because we belong to you, we want to live this way as your people, as your kids, as we wait for the return, as we await for the end of all things. Holy Spirit, empower us, quicken ideas to us, maybe even quicken people to us as we go from here, as we talk with one another, as we linger with one another, be able to have the conversations that maybe lead to more relationships, more connections. Spirit of God, thank you for the dream centers that are beginning to be launched through partnerships with other churches. We're so grateful for that. 
But may all of us, as all the different churches in this city, may all of us learn what it means to be the people who love one another. Let it be that love that spills out. Not something artificial, not something idealistic. Something that's natural because we've just we've been doing this for one another for a long time. So why wouldn't we do it for someone else? Make us those kinds of people, Holy Spirit, by your power, by your grace. Be with us as we go now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.